You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Here we are again with another episode of Derms and Conditions, and we have, I, I think, a very special guest. It's not that often that we get someone that is triple board certified, and I'm talking about Dr. Mark Sirota, who's in private practice of dermatology in Denver and, and Littleton, Colorado. He also is an adjunct of faculty at the University of Colorado supervising residents, and that is actually where he d- did his dermatology residency. And very interestingly, which has a lot to what I want to talk to him about today, he found founded a teledermatology company in 2020. So, Mark, it's great to have you here. I'm looking forward to a great discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So, my understanding is, back in my old stomping grounds on Long Island, this is where you did your pediatric uh, residency at Long Island Jewish Hospital. That's what it was called at the time. And then you did an allergy and immunology fellowship in Kansas City. And then you meandered out west, uh, similar to what I did, but not doing the same thing as you. But you ended up doing a dermatology residency at University of Colorado and then stayed in Colorado. Um, That air must have gotten to you. That clean, fresh air must have gotten to you. (laughs) And so do I have that correct? Yeah, exactly right. Um, After my allergy fellowship, I decided to do a dermatology residency. And the reason is most allergists don't get to do one second of dermatology training in their entire two-year allergy fellowship. And a lot of times now they're seeing complex rashes and atopic problems and urticarial problems without really knowing what the differential diagnoses are for things that look like those conditions, but actually aren't. So I got interested in doing a dermatology residency to become a better allergist. And once I finished that, one of the things I really enjoy doing is trying to bridge the specialties and cross train people into what happens in the allergy office when you send someone there, what can you do, what can't you do? And likewise, talk to the allergists about differential diagnoses for things that they may not have heard of or aren't considering just because they haven't had the exposure to it. So doing a dermatology residency made you a better allergist immunologist and doing the allergy and immunology fellowship has made you a better dermatologist. It sort of works in both directions, doesn't it? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when we go to lectures and, and hear our colleagues talk, a lot of times the lectures that excite us most are when we get to hear how other specialties use similar medications or treat related conditions, because that's where we sort of go into a black box where we don't know what happens when the person goes to the rheumatologist's office. So we want to hear how are the rheumatologists using these treatments? How are the rheumatologists treating similar conditions? And I think allergy and dermatology just has a lot of overlap where the need is there to cross train and be comfortable with both aspects. Yeah, one of my best relationships with another specialty in town is with an allergist immunologist that we share on, on a lot of cases. But what I really want to talk to you about today is teledermatology. And because in my own mind, you know, the limited scope of my own mind from my vantage point, not really having done much in teledermatology, but recognizing how widespread it is and how it became widespread and really was a top topic of conversation during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which we talk about. Uh, It became a way that clinicians would be able to see patients. It happened very, very quickly. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I know you know a lot about this area, just doing it yourself and then having a company, which we'll get into a little bit later, how, how that works. And and some issues with that, you know, 
there was a lot of forgiveness on some of the aspects of where you might have some kind of regulation against what you're doing because of the need for patients to get access to care. Um, but now we don't hear about tele- teledermatology as much anymore, but it's still going on. So what is the status of teledermatology right now? How commonly is it being used in dermatology? Because we just don't hear much talk about it anymore. Yes, yeah, so I've been practicing telehealth since 2014. And it was so way before the pandemic. And when I would talk about it, it, it was kind of looked at as a dirty word at the time. People would look at me sideways and say, how do you do this? Can you actually do it? And then the pandemic happened and sort of everyone needed to know how to do it really quickly. And then it sort of has faded away a bit uh, since the pandemic has gone away. So the first question I think is why does telehealth deserve to exist in the long run? And I think in the world of dermatology, what you see is a massive gap in access to care. And in the United States, you have to be licensed as a practitioner in the United States to practice medicine. It cannot be outsourced to uh, a foreign practitioner. It cannot be outsourced to artificial intelligence. You need a human being who is specialized in dermatology to treat patients. So either we have to be able to expand access to efficient care, or that vacuum is going to be filled with practitioners that do not have the requisite expertise to actually treat those patients. So it absolutely deserves to exist. And it's a way to offload patients that can be seen this way so that you can have your office-based practice have patients that come in that actually need you to be able to put your hands on them and do procedures on them and do things that require that you come to the office. So this has to exist. And this is the solution that helps us retain our specialty for us so that other practitioners are not being outsourced to fill that void that will naturally occur if we don't have our own solution for it. Those patients are going to go somewhere. They're going to find a place to go, right? And, And so I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, it makes sense for remote locations, somebody way up in the north of Alaska or somebody in the third world country or, you know, far away from where they can actually get to a dermatologist. But the use obviously goes way beyond that. It obviously makes sense for that. Um, But how many dermatologists or what's the sense of how commonly it's being used now compared to where it was used at the peak of the pandemic? So I think it's being used in two different ways. During the pandemic and most practitioners, what they were familiar with was it was just an extension of their existing practices where it was just another modality that people could use to access their doctor other than coming to the office. So you were just using it as a way to augment your practice, which is one way to do it. The other way to practice telehealth is to understand the regulation that you have to be licensed in the state the patient is located in. So if you actually want to make this more of a career and have more volume of patients than just what you're acquiring in your own, you know, normal practice in your state, then you have to be licensed in the states where the patients are consulting from. Wherever their feet are planted on the floor, you have to have a state uh, a license in that state. Can I ask you a question about that? Let's say you have a somebody that's going off to college and they they live there in Littleton, Colorado where you are, but now they go to college in Nebraska. Can you not provide that service to them when they're at college in Nebraska, even though their primary residence is really in Colorado? The answer in most states is no, you cannot continue to treat that patient because they're no longer located in the state that you're licensed in. So it's all about where those patients' feet are planted, whatever state they're physically in. I see. Some states have regulations that will allow for you to continue care if you started care in your state. Most do not. 
So that's one aspect is if you're treating your own patients, but if you want to work for an online telehealth company and have them acquiring all the patients for you and all you're doing is seeing them and treating them, then you want to have lots of state licenses because that makes you a valuable asset where now you can see patients all over the country. So I have licenses right now in something like 43 states, and I can see patients from all over the country when they come in and there's licensing pathways that make it really easy to get licensed in lots of states very quickly. So are you licensed only to provide teledermatology or do you have a complete medical license in those states? Or does it vary from state to state? Some states have telehealth specific licenses. Most states and and virtually all of my licenses are just full medical licenses because it's not really any harder to get a full medical license than it is to get a telehealth license for most states. So let's 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 go to the situation that most dermatologists are in because the, most of them do not own a company. And then I, I have some questions specifically about some of the issues and challenges that you might face, you know, actually owning and carrying out a company. But for for dermatologists that are doing, uh, you know, this type of, of this is part of their practice. It may not be the only thing that they're doing. What are some of the pitfalls that people get into? Because I, I have a lot of people saying, well, you know, they're holding the camera. I can see their ceiling fan. <laughs> they got. I asked them what type of ceiling fan because I liked it, but I never really saw their disease or the limitation that they're there for acne, but you're not checking them over. And they, they have a, a typical pigmented lesion on their back. Um, are you responsible for that? How do you limit the scope of your responsibility and how do you actually improve the visit, the quality of the visit, the visualization of the patient? I know they're two separate questions, but they're both important, I think. Yeah. The number one complaint I get about telehealth is I don't like it because I can't see anything. And my answer to that is if you're trying to diagnose things on a video then that is going to be your complaint. Video is for rapport building and to getting to know the patient and satisfying the relationship with the patient. The way you diagnose things is on photographs. And if you have a flow where the patient can upload photographs prior to the visit, all you have to do is show them, this is the kind of photograph I want. I want one close up. I want one medium. I want one airplane view so I can see the distribution. And you show them examples of each. So you could show your own face and say, here's my close up of the lesion. Here's medium. Here's airplane view. This is how I want you to upload them. That way, when you enter the visit, you've already seen the photos. Most likely, in most cases, you already know the diagnosis. The patient has already filled out a medical intake form to tell you what's going on. And before you actually talk to the patient, you pretty much know what's going on and you already have a a, a treatment plan in your mind formulated. So that's how you turn those from uh, frustrating visits into really easy, efficient visits that are much quicker than an office visit. And it's about training the patient before they enter the visit to already have uploaded the information you need to do your job, which is exactly how our board exams are. We diagnose things on the dermatology boards by photographs and history. So you want to mimic a board exam question so that when you see the patient you already know what the diagnosis is. The second question that you asked is about the concern for liability. And number one, it is very, very, very rare for someone to uh, to pursue a malpractice claim against you in a telehealth setting. Uh, it's one of the lowest lowest risk things in medicine that you can do as a telehealth visit. Is, is and, it, it, well, it's, it, for the masses of people, you've been using it longer. It's not been around that long. Is that flat? Or is there a, sequ- a sequential rise in the number of cases as as it's a- around longer? Because it takes time for cases to emerge, 
Correct. To my knowledge, there's only been one successful malpractice claim against a telehealth physician, and it was a psychiatrist who developed a personal relationship with a patient. Oh, there's wow. never been a claim against a misdiagnosis or anything like that. And part of the disclaimers and part of the things you say in your clinical notes and your notes to the patient is this is a telemedicine visit. It doesn't replace your in-person visit. I'm not doing a, a full assessment of your skin. And I do not recommend that you make any absolute statements about skin lesions on telehealth. You say, I think this is most likely a seborrheic keratosis. I cannot rule out 100% that it's not something bad because I don't have uh, my, my usual tools and being able to look up close with my uh, dermatoscope. But I believe this is X lesion. And I think this is a reasonable time frame for you to get in to see a dermatologist in person to further assess it. So you just never speak in absolutes and you tell patients the limitations of your telehealth assessment when you give them their written documentation. So I would imagine you have some patients that lock into you and you're seeing them on a long-term basis. These are not just one-time visits. So do you require or strongly suggest, let's say you're seeing a patient now over a couple of years and, and they tell you you're the only dermatologist they're seeing and it's all telehealth. Do you recommend periodically, hey, it's a good idea that you be in with someone um, far away from you, but be checked in to be looked at more completely? Or are you comfortable with the relationship between the patient and the dermatologist being totally through teledermatology? I think it depends on the use case. So if you're assessing someone for skin cancer, those are not things that should be done routinely through telehealth. If an isolated lesion needs to be looked at and in two seconds, you can say that's a cherry angioma, don't worry about it. Great. You don't do full skin checks over telehealth. So you just have to think about what can reasonably be done over telemedicine for dermatology. And for the most part, it's not things in the skin cancer realm. It's all the other stuff. It's rashes, it's acne, it's uh, rosacea, it's uh, hair loss, it's all the other things that you can do. So if you combined the correct diagnosis spectrum of things you treat with a proper intake process where you have an intake form and clinical photos, you can treat that patient extremely efficiently. And what that does is you can't have a dermatologist completely switch to 100% telemedicine uh, because they want to work in their practices, they're already seeing patients. So the way I think about it is this way. You have a vase and you have Christmas ornaments in the vase. I can't put more Christmas ornaments in without taking something out. And I'm not going to replace the Christmas ornaments of their actual practice. But what I can do is there's plenty of room in that vase to pour sand. So if I can give you an extra thing that you can do on the in-between times that are really easy and efficient interactions, now it's just a moonlighting thing for you. And you're making you know potentially a really nice secondary stream of revenue without having to replace what you're already doing. So I think of telemedicine as the sand, not the Christmas ornaments. I see. So the, but it also is providing a service to people that want that service. So, so now I'm Jim Del Rosso and I'm practicing in Las Vegas, Nevada. And one of my patients comes in and says, you know, Dr. Rosso, I've been seeing you for a while, but it was a little tough to get in. And I saw this other doctor you know, and I've showed you this lesion a couple of times and you, you said it's okay. And I saw this other doctor, Serrata, some, some guy in Colorado, right? And so now all of a sudden I'm dealing with another dermatologist who, not that I own the patient, but it's been an established patient of mine. And now the, 
there's an intervention with the patient that's telling me something different than what I recommended. How often does it become sticky? You, you, you follow what I'm getting at? You have a patient going somewhere else and then there's varied opinions and you're, you know, I'm thinking he's not even there. He's in another state. You know, what's going on here? How often do you get into sticky situations like that? Or a, a patient coming in and says, this doctor told me I should have a biopsy. I expect you to do it today. You know, when they just show up, you know, sticky practical situations. I think the actual practicing of the medicine and the way in which you communicate with the patient should be the same, whether you're doing a telehealth visit or an in-person visit. So if you looked at my telehealth note, it should look essentially the same or very similar to what you would expect if another doctor in Las Vegas saw that patient first. You should understand what I recommended and why I thought what I thought. Um, and I think it comes down to patient selection again, where if you're treating conditions that can easily be treated and diagnosed over photographs, then you don't run into those things. If you start trying to get into the weeds of figuring out skin cancers, which is definitely not the best use of telehealth, then you can get into those problems. So that's right. why I think for, for most dermatologists, if you're seeing a patient that's interested in you looking at a skin lesion, I always start the conversation with, I can't tell you this 100%, I'm looking at a photograph. And it's about triaging the risk of that lesion and saying, I'm, I'm two out of 10 concerned about this, or I'm 10 out of 10 concerned about this. And, you know, sometimes you can triage out the easy benign things, but you're not going to be able to tell the patient 100% something's bad or not. And that's when you refer to an in-person doctor and just say in your notes, if you looked at my note, it would say, my concern is X, Y, and Z, you know, this was over telemedicine. So I'd like the patient to have it looked at in person. And then at that point, I'm going to defer to the in-person doctor 100%. So how often do you actually, when you're seeing a patient, see something where, you know, they have a dermatologist, do you ever communicate with that dermatologist if there's something that is serious enough and you're concerned the patient's not going to follow up? Yeah, again, I think it would be the same as if you saw them in your office and you needed to call an outside physician, then you should do that. But I, I would want people to expand their ideas of what kind of treatments you can actually offer over telehealth. I just started someone on a JAK inhibitor for atopic dermatitis earlier today. Never met them in person, explained everything in detail. They get written out instructions and handouts and everything. I treat patients with systemics for psoriasis and all these different things where you can imagine you could go to a dermatologist in person and maybe their office just doesn't do biologics for one reason or another. So you're really expanding access to care for people for things that maybe you think you couldn't do online. So I, while I don't like the idea of assessing skin lesions and skin cancers online, I think people should take that out of their mind for the most part. There's a lot of other things like all the different rashes and acne and things like that, where you can treat them really effectively online and you can help exponentially more patients by just giving access to yourself where you don't have to drive to an office. You don't have to waste, waste time getting in the gown and doing all this stuff. Cause when you load the visit, everything you need to see is already sitting there for you. But if they need a buy, if you think they need a biopsy or even a KOH, because you, you, you know, you really want to be accurate about a diagnosis. And we, we certainly see, you know, fungal infections that are treated erroneously or whatever, where, where you can't do a simple test through telehealth. Did you, have you found that you have rapport with certain physicians in other communities that see those patients? 
I mean, I see patients nationally, so I couldn't have a relationship with all of them, but I do tell the patients, print out my note and bring it to your doctor because it's going to have, they're going to understand exactly what I'm saying and my differential diagnosis. The other thing to your point is when you're practicing telehealth, you want to adhere to the do no harm policy. So if you're not sure if it's numular dermatitis or tinea, under in, in person, you might scrape it and try to figure it out for sure. Online, you don't have that uh, option at your disposal. So you do no harm. You say, listen, I can't really tell if this is numbular dermatitis or tinea. I think it's maybe slightly more likely tinea. So we're going to treat it with an antifungal that's not going to hurt you. And if you don't get better in four to six weeks, we're going to switch it to a steroid. And then one of those two is going to make you better. And the patient understands that. And it's actually still more efficient than waiting three months to get into you know their next dermatology appointment. So sometimes you have to, you have to kind of... Uh, come from the principle of do no harm and have plan A, plan B that makes sense to you where the treatment can prove the diagnosis because maybe you don't have the option of a diagnostic test. Well, it sounds like the quality of the note is really has a lot to do with it. And anyone that gets that, if they're going to somewhere else in their community, that'll be very clear to them based on what they're reading from your note. So I would imagine you've really fine-tuned your records uh, in doing telehealth. You know, which is what you would want to do in in your in your regular live clinical practice too, but it becomes somewhat cumbersome with how busy people are. So uh, th- this has been very enlightening. Mark, do you have any final? You're recommending to Jim Dorasso, who has never done a telehealth visit, but now you got them all pumped up. This sounds really good. What what things should I look out for? What mistakes should I try to prevent making in the first place? Well, I think first my pitch to doctors to do telehealth is it really increases your quality of life. It's that sand example, and maybe you're doing you're in the office two or three days a week instead of four days a week, and you can work while you know for an hour while you're laying on the beach on vacation. If you set yourself up properly with the intakes and the photos, it can be a very efficient visit. And I advocate for patients consulting for a very specific use case. So you might work for a company that only does acne treatment and they only sell one version of tretinoin cream, but they need a doctor to diagnose and manage that properly. Well, how long would it take you to look at someone's photos and an intake form of their acne and say, yes, you can have tretinoin 0.05% cream. Let me know if you have any questions. It takes a doctor less than 60 seconds to do that. So you can do high volume, very efficient visits uh, while you're lying on the beach. So it really improves your quality of life. It really improves access to care. And if you set it up properly, it can be a really nice adjunct to your uh, existing revenue streams. In terms of pitfalls, the pitfalls to know are if you're licensed in more than one state, you need to know the telehealth laws in each state because each state is slightly different on what it takes to establish a doctor-patient relationship and what kind of documentation you have to have to make sure that you're practicing within the laws of that state. So if you uh, are planning on practicing telehealth in a more widespread manner like I do and like my company offers, you want to make sure that you're familiar with the laws in each state so that you're not ascribing Nevada's laws to the telehealth laws as they may exist in New York. So, Mark, this has been very enlightening to me, and I think it's going to really get a lot of people to understand better how to how to do it more efficiently. Because if, if they're only dabbling, then they might be make, running into the same hassles over and over again and never figured out how to overcome them. So thanks for your time, and uh, I'm sure I'll run into you at another meeting pretty soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.